And now, our next group. Our piece de resistance, if I may say so. Here you will find the most infamous black-hearted killers of all time. It is not for the faint-hearted. So, if there are any who would prefer to remain behind... No? Very well, then. We're gonna go for a joyride. You've just made a wrong turn heading south onto strange highways. Enter Death's waiting room, if you dare. And welcome to Strange Highways. I am Paul. Hey guys, it's Terry here. And I hope you guys uh, enjoyed our conversation about I Dream of Genie. Maybe you'd enjoy the episode itself. Um, it was okay, but good news is um, the, the one we're going to talk about tonight. There's a lot more going on, so I think we've wandered through the little bit of the desert that was season four. So hopefully, we're now on the the back third. Maybe maybe there's some. Maybe there's some gold in the hills. We'll, we'll find out. Um, but I'm excited to talk about this one for sure. Yes, I am very interested in talking about this episode. Yeah. So, yeah, this is this is like the, the Terry episode, just so everybody knows. So, <laughs> uh, this is uh, season four, episode 13, The New Exhibit. Air date was uh, April 4th, 1963. Number one song, He's So Fine by the Chiffons. Number one film, it was It Happened at the World's Fair. Uh, it happened at the World's Fair as a 1963 musical film starring Elvis Presley as a crop dusting pilot. And I just can't not think of him as just being a guy who crop dusts. Like he just hangs out around at the World's Fair crop dusting. Um, I think that'd be a way more enjoyable movie. I think that's hilarious, actually. <laughs> I thought that the concept alone in this day and age would be, there would totally be a straight up comedy film. So. And, then, and people, just, when you see Elvis moving his hips, you know it's because he's crop dusting and that's why. <laughs> um, so, uh, important things that happened on this day and date, uh, the cost of making a long distance telephone call was lowered throughout the continental United States uh, with a maximum charge of $1 for three minute station to station calls made between 9 PM and 4 30 AM. Uh, the equivalent, uh, 50 years later for a, a 1963 dollar. So, uh, just to give you guys a point of reference, would be $7 and 50 cents. So it'd be $7 50 cents for, uh, three minutes of long distance phone time at that time. Uh, I can't remember the last time I thought about, oh crap, could I wait? Do I have to wait an hour to make this phone call? Cause it's cheaper, but that is a world I lived in for a little bit. Yeah. I, I, I can't like, I never had any friends that I wanted to call long distance, but my mom used to have to, but she used calling cards. So that's even a foreign thing now too. Yeah, no, I, yeah, you're right. Calling cards. Like I, I remember those, like you have to go and scratch off numbers and then you'd hear like five minutes remaining. It's like, Oh no, I guess, I guess we just have to hang up now. Cause I don't have any more money, but even with like earlier cell phones, they had like, you know, anytime minutes or after seven, 
Like I remember that was a thing, and now it's just more like, well, you need to call the moon. We can we can make that happen. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, no roaming, no problem. Yeah. So yeah, I just I just I just told you like you know we're living a little different world, and that's I remember this. I I remember having um I remember being so poor growing up that my mom like we had a like a landline that could only make she would be charged by the phone call if it was local. So uh, what she would do, because like, clearly my family were geniuses, my mom would call my grandmother and she'd let it ring once and then hang up. And that was my grandmother's signal to call her. So that way she wouldn't be spending money on making a phone call. See, that's that's hilarious. So we used to do the, my buddy and I used to do the like 1-800 collect or whatever it was. And you'd call that number and then you'd have to, leave a message of who was calling and my buddy would be like, pick me up at JC Penney's. And <laughs> <laughs> so we'd be, we'd, we'd leave that message. And then like 10 minutes, his mom would pick us up at JC Penney's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There was the old commercial of that where, uh, it was like somebody calling, uh, calling their, their parents from the hospital. Cause they just had the baby and they're like, uh, who may I tell, I tell is calling. It's like, uh, we, we had a baby. It's a boy. Like that was, that was the name that was supposed to be given to them for the long distance call. Um, but yeah, that's funny. Um, uh, but we don't have to worry about that stuff now. So that's good. Uh, thank God. Yeah. Um, now we just have these like tiny squares we carry with us that we don't want to answer phone calls on. So I'm glad that we've, we've moved on. Like I, if I get a direct phone call and it's not my wife, I get panicky. <laughs> like, <laughs> You know, I'm just like, I don't know who this is, you know, like, and I'm getting a potential spam call right now. Just as I say that, uh, I'm not answering that because it's probably, are you for real? Like it's probably not some of the JC pennies wanting to be picked up. So I can tell you that much. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, 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 it's Elvis Presley. He's like, you know, I'm done crop dusting at the world's fair. Can you come pick me up? I'm like, no, not right now, sir. <laughs> I'll be by the Ferris wheel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's it. That's your day and date. So let's just uh, get into to cast and crew here. Okay, so uh, we got a director of John Bram. Looks uh, right, uh, John Brom, B R A H. Yeah, Brom. Yeah. Okay, so he did eleven other episodes. So yeah, I'm not gonna go through all of them, but uh, Young Man's Fancy, Person or Persons Unknown. Yeah, you just saw Shadow that one. Theory. Yeah. So, yeah. A Shadow Play uh, is really I, good too. Yeah. Uh, a nice place to visit. That one I did like a lot. Nice place to visit. Yeah, that has one of my favorite uh, like button endings ever on an episode of the Twilight Zone. It's like one of the epitome twists of the Twilight Zone. But yeah, uh, John Brom, like he is actually one of the mainstay directors. This is actually going to be, you know, the, the we only have a few more of his left, so it was good to see him back directing. Uh, but yeah, last time we saw him was in season three's Young Man's Fancy. Yeah, and then um, uh, other than that, I, uh, the only thing I really had for, notable for him was uh, ten episodes of the Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Yeah, I just figured we talk. I I know I've encountered Mr. Brahm a great deal, so I didn't have any other notes for him. Yeah, and then uh, uh, our writer is he is no stranger as well. We got Charles Beaumont back again. Yeah, yes and no. Um, I will I, I will I will say this part first, and then when we get to the end of the episode, I'll go a little bit more into this. Uh, so Charles Beaumont, um, he, uh, for whatever reason, and they, they weren't sure at the time they believed that, uh, cause he was only in his thirties, like early thirties at this time. Uh, he, um, 
he they believe either he had Alzheimer's, like early onset Alzheimer's, or something called Pick's disease, which Pick's disease, I guess they can't fully diagnose until they do like an autopsy and actually cut into the brain. So they weren't sure what actually was hitting him at this time. Well, not even at this time, like he was starting to suffer and, um, and people didn't quite know, like they just thought he was overworking himself. So this episode is technically credited to him, but it wasn't written by him. Um, this is one of three episodes of the twilight zone, um, that are going to be credited to Beaumont, but were actually uh, ghost written. Um, so this one, uh, queen of the Nile and living doll, which we've not seen those two yet. Um, so this was actually written by a guy named, um, Jerry soul, uh, who, uh, he just did a lot of, um, I don't know. He, he did some star Trek stuff. Like he, you know, he has his own things that he's done, but this is like his only one he did with the twilight zone. And he couldn't even tell people that he did it for the t- at the time because Beaumont's name was on it. So this one's a little different. Yeah, I had that as a note as well. So I, I was gonna uh, kind of leave that part, but you got it. There it is. <laughs> yeah, and I have a bit later once we get to the end of the episode about the conversation that Saul had with Beaumont, and um, I'll, I'll get to more into the deterioration of Beaumont at the end because it is a sad story, and we're gonna you know obviously revisit it uh, two more times. But I was always wondering because I know Beaumont, like I knew this this withering thing hit him. At some point during the run, I was I wasn't sure when we would start seeing like the episodes that had his name on it, and they weren't really his. And this is the first one, so uh, it's sad. Uh, but in, and 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 the story I'll even relate to you later is sad, but it's important, um, and I think it provides a little context because this does feel like a Beaumont idea, but it, like it's it's different. Um, and knowing that somebody else wrote it, you know, I can I can kind of see that now. Yeah. So and then, so moving on yeah. uh, through the cast, uh, we have. Uh, so this is an interesting name for me. So Martin Balsam. Uh, Balsam. Balsam. Yeah. Balsam. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he plays Martin, uh, the main character. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. His so last name. Big stretch. Like yeah. Bill Cosby pays Bill Cosby. Yeah, but um, it's like yeah, it's Martin Lombard Sinescu. So Martin is fine by me because that's a weird last name. Yeah, I didn't even i I tried multiple times as watching it to sound it out myself, and I'm like, "No, nope. are you kidding, Terry?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Martin as happen. Martin. So, yeah, Martin plays Martin. Um, and then so he he did uh, one other episode that was the 16 millimeter shrine, which I really enjoyed that episode. It's a wonderful episode, um, and I'm excited. Uh, it's actually it's season one. Oh, it's, uh, I wrote episode one. That's not true. It's one of the early, early episodes of the season one. Uh, and the lady that's the, the main actress in that piece, uh, she actually directs an episode of the twilight zone that we've not seen yet. And I'm, I'm waiting to get to that one because it's the only time there was a female directing an episode of the twilight zone. She happened to be an actress in it. So I've mm-hmm. been, I've been, and, and plus the 60 millimeter shrine is a wonderful, wonderful episode. Uh, so yeah, we, we've uh, seen him previously. Um, I remember him now more from uh, Death Wish 3 and the Delta Force because I watched a lot of canon films from my other show last year. So I was like, oh, that's, that's, um, that's Marty Bassam. He's with, uh, he's with uh, um, Charles Bronson and they're just using um, you know Gatling guns on street punks. Fun. Nice. And uh, uh, I, I recognize him from a few other things, but he also did two episodes of the 80s version of The Twilight Zone as okay. well. Um, and then, uh, he did both versions of Cape fear. 
Uh, he was well he was a bit actor in both versions should i say and then um he was in the uh george romero um film two evil eyes and psycho that's right he was in psycho yeah i forgot to mention that but yeah the guy you know he's a very distinguished look about him it was good to see him again um you know and i i wish we would have gotten more of him in the series uh, especially because this is his lead, because he was a smaller part in the previous episode he was in. Yeah, I, I really liked him in the 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 other episode as well, the sixteen millimeter shrine. I thought he was a very sympathetic character, and I I, I even in watching that episode, I I was looking forward to seeing him in more uh, more acting roles. So, but uh, so yeah, moving on, we have uh, Margaret Field. Uh, she plays Emma. This is Martin's wife in the episode. Um, her only um, appearance in Twilight Zone. And honest to God, I didn't recognize her from anything else in her IMDb. Well, the only thing that I, I found just looking into her is that she was she's the mother of Sally Field. And that um, she actually had stopped uh, acting professionally um, like at some point. Because I, I think it's like she had a couple children. And so, yeah. But she's mainly known now as the mother of Sally Field. That's interesting because I now that you say that uh, she does look very familiar and like I I can see that in in her eyes especially yeah so um she's like, here we oh, go with another name I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, my daughter one day is gonna be in a movie with Burt Reynolds and he's gonna laugh every take that's what's that's what's gonna happen um <laughs> anyway <laughs> yes, I, I, now that I like Sally Field so I'm like I I wish I, we could talk about her but she's not in this episode so we'll save that. For another time, but uh, <laughs> here's another episode uh, or another uh, character actor that I'm gonna I'm gonna mess up his name. I'm, I know it, but uh, Will Kolova. I think it's Kolova, yeah, or Kolova, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he plays Ernest uh, Ferguson. He plays the owner of the uh, wax museum. Um, one other episode, the mirror, and uh, and then outside of that, he did some episodes of the Alfred. Hitchcock presents and that's all I have for him yeah once I saw he was in the mirror I'm like yeah I probably didn't remember him from anything else that, that episode was very forgettable so yeah it's good to see he's a better role here because there was no good roles in the mirror other than um <laughs> uh, uh what's his name um the the main guy but whatever I, I, my mind's blanking right now so let's move on okay so uh uh next we have Willem Mims he plays Dave the brother of Emma uh, only Twilight Zone appearance. Uh, he did one episode of the uh, Night Gallery, and then he was some in some Airwolf. I mean, you got to you got to recognize Airwolf when you find it. Uh, he did a lot of TV westerns. Um, one thing I'll point out, um, and this is for you, Terry, so you'll appreciate this. He was in 1971's uh, Johnny Got His Gun, uh, the Dalton Trumbo film, which that is the film that is used as the um, the footage of that is in the Metallica One video. Nice. That's yeah. a good call, man. You got me. <laughs> and, and then here's, here's something else. Like I've read the book, Johnny got his gun. It is, um, it's messed up. Like it was actually, and this is not this episode. So forgive me. I'm a, I'm a wander into this for a second, but it was written in the, the space between world war one and before world war two actually happened. So this was supposed to be like showing people the cost of war and, and Dalton Trumbull had like, no one had an idea what was coming. But it's told from the position of Johnny, who uh, he, he had a grenade go off near him in a trench, and um, 
because they they you know people try to 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 help him live he ends up getting um both legs and both arms um blown off and his face blown off pretty much too so he's just like this like lump of a being in a bed and he starts to slowly realize that he can't communicate with the outside world um until he starts trying to do um like a morse code with his head and it's it's it, the 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 book the book is just brutal and then when you see the Metallica video, which I know, it, correct me if I'm wrong, that one is written about like um, people dealing with the horrors of Vietnam and what happened to the soldiers, um, and they use this this movie as a backdrop. Like you put the two together, and it, they 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 um they get the point across really damn well. Yeah, this was um, this was actually Metallica's first video for MTV, and it launched them into uh, a huge stardom where they couldn't keep up with it. They were opening up for Ozzy Osbourne for this tour and they were, they were actually drawing a huge crowd at that point. Yeah. Uh, it, they were from this point on Metallica was huge. Yeah. So there you go. Johnny guy's gun. Uh, haven't seen the movie outside of that video, but the book is just, it's, you know, it's a sledgehammer. So there you go. That's William Mims was in that movie. Uh, but you know, and maybe, maybe he was briefly in a Metallica video. I can't, I can't tell you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I look forward to watching that movie, especially because of, uh, that, that music video, but haven't been around to it yet. But, uh, anyway, so moving on, uh, Milton Pers- uh, Parsons is next. Uh, he plays, all right, so this one's going to be difficult because it's a French name. So, yeah. Henry Desire Adru. I'm going to I'm going to try like Henri Desire Landru. I think that's I, but I'm probably just as bad and wrong. Whatever, he's French, you know. Yeah, you you have a you have a better ability to pronounce that because you sounded more like the actor to set it in the movie. So, yeah. I'm going to go with yours. All right, so. <clears throat> So this was one of the wax characters for reference. Um, but uh, so Milton, he played in two other episodes. I dream a genie, which he, we just watched. And then once upon a time. Yeah, it's the Buster Keaton episode. And I couldn't tell you like, yeah. So and then so otherwise uh, he did a, a one episode of Johnny Midnight. And one episode of Night Gallery. There you go. That's what I got too. I mean, the Johnny Midnight, because that's important. So, and then moving on, we have uh, David Bond. He plays the Jack the Ripper wax character. And uh, this was his only episode of Twilight Zone. Um, 12 episodes of The Many Loves of Dobby Gills. Gillis. Oh, uh, yeah, Dobby Gillis. That's, um, that's Gilligan. Uh, that's uh, Bob Denver uh, before oh, he was okay. in Gilligan's Island. Yeah. And then, so one fun role that I did notice out of his uh, IMDb is that he was in Return of the Living Dead as Radio Corpse number two. Yeah, weren't they the ones like saying like send more ambulance drivers or whatever? Like, weren't they the ones yeah. that called it out? Send, send more paramedics. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I love I I love that movie so much. So when I saw that little note in there, I was like, get the hell out of here. Nice. And I, I had to look back at his picture. I was like, of course it is. Yes. <laughs> um, so. yeah, I, I, I had put that in my notes, but I figured you'd jump on it. So that's that, you know, and that's why we're friends. Uh, thank you. <laughs> so, uh, Bob Mitchell, he is Albert Hicks, another one of the wax characters. Um, 
this is his only acting credit. Yeah. Um, he wrote a lot of television. So when I was first like going through the IMDb for him, I'm like, I'm not seeing twilight zone in here. Like, why is his name popping up for this? And I'm like, Oh, I'm looking on the wrong list. And I'm like, Oh, he only acted in this as a guy standing still holding an ax. Okay. Yeah. And I, that's exactly what I did too. And like when I saw that this was his only credit, I was like, Oh, Okay, I mean, like, that's really unusual that they would pick him. But then, so this will be in the future notes here. But um, when you look up the character he's supposed to be portraying as a wax character, he looks a lot like the killer. He looks a lot like him. So he, there must have been some connection there, and they got this guy linked to the role. But he, And another fun note. As soon as I saw his face, I was like, is that Benicio Del Toro? <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. Like, I, I thought you said that. You're not wrong. So, uh, yeah. And then um, next we have um, Robert McCord. He plays Burke. This is another one of the uh, wax characters. Uh, this is William Burke. Um, he did 32 episodes of Twilight Zone. This is the character, the, the actor that you had mentioned last episode. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, this is our good old buddy Robert McCord. And this is actually one of the few times in the series in which he's actually listed as like a character by name, as opposed to like an uncredited or someone in the background. He got paid like 600 bucks for this. So evidently, I was reading. Um, there, I have this book called The Twilight Zone Encyclopedia. Uh, that they actually have a, a write-up about him. Because I was like, you know what? I, it never occurred to me to look up him in it. And, and the, the bulk of it is just listing all the things that he did for the Twilight Zone. But he was kind of a like a, like a guy that's hang out in the lot and always be available. So I didn't know. I thought maybe he was more of like a like a person associated with the show. So that's so they always put him in. I think I think he's the kind of guy that would sit around with like a suitcase full of suits and outfits and be like, you need somebody? I'll do it type of thing. Because you know how like the life of an extra is be ready all the time. So I think that's kind of what he did. And in this case, he actually got cast in, you know, I'd say a significant role. You know, not much there, but he's on the screen a lot more than he normally is. Yeah, that's for sure. I, especially compared to the last episode. Like, <laughs> how much screen time was that? Like 30 seconds maybe, at best. Maybe, yeah. So, and then the only, the only note that I have there is that we're going to see him in six more episodes after this. Yeah. I'll be, oh. there's going to, it's going to be a sad day when we get to our last Robert McCord. Like, I feel like I've gotten to know him though. I don't recognize his face often. Yeah. So, um, so next we have, uh, Billy Beck. He plays William Hare again, another wax character. Um, he, this was his only Twilight Zone appearance as well. Um, he was in stir crazy bachelor party house near dark and my favorite of this entire list the blob and this was a more extensive role compared to the others yeah he um he was in the 88 remake of the blob like you said he was the first victim in the movie so uh, keep your eye out for that mm -hmm. uh he was also the homeless man in leprechaun 2 i just want to also uh mention that because i had not seen leprechaun 2 until recently uh at, at a common friend's uh uh you know st <laughs> patrick's day party that we attended so I was like, that's the homeless guy. Yeah. But yeah, yeah I, I, I noticed that too, but I'm like, I'm such an eighties buff that like lo looking through his, his IMDB, it's like, he did quite a bit of shows here and there, whatever. 
But like the eighties is when he really hit his stride for movie roles, but they're, you know, all small roles. But I was like, Oh my God, I like every movie that I just lifted off. I absolutely adore and watched a lot when I was a kid. Yeah. Well, he also said one other credit I want to point out. Um, he's in the amazing stories, uh, episode mummy daddy, which we covered on the show here, um, like, uh, for Halloween or something. It was, it was a, it was a detour between seasons. Cause, uh, uh, we covered that in ghost train and the, and the bit of mummy daddy, there's a bit where the, um, the guy who's dressed up as a mummy and they can't talk, but everybody thinks he's an actual mummy. So they're trying to kill him. He ends up in this cabin with this old blind man that, you know, doesn't, it doesn't know that the guy's dressed up like a mummy and um, uh, Beck is the blind man in that episode. And if people have not seen mummy daddy, uh, it is, it's a delight. It's, it's a wonderful episode of amazing stories. I haven't seen that. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. It's I mean, the, the premise is that they're making a mummy movie in the swamp and the actor uh, that's dressed up as the mummy can't talk because he's a mummy, but he gets a phone call that his wife's going into labor. So he leaves the set in a hurry and then his car runs out of gas. And then the locals in this like backwoods, like swamp town have heard the legends of the mummy coming at night or whatever. And they see him and assume it's, he's an actual mummy. So it becomes a whole big comedy of errors where he's just trying to get to this hospital and people are just like trying to kill him. And it's, it's really, really funny. Uh, Bronson Pinchot's in it for a second. Like it's, um, it's, it's a fun episode. Um, freaking, um, Oh shoot. What's his name? Uh, the guy from Blade Runner that was one of the, um, synthetics that the beginning of that film, uh, whatever there, there's, there's recognizable Howard, right? not Rucker Howard. He's, um, Brian, Brian, something uh, I'll look it up right now. Cause it bugs me that I don't have his name off the top of my head. I I'm being distracted. I apologize everybody. Uh, it is cast is one second here. This is what you do. You wait for me to get into this, and I'm I'm going to get I'm going to get you the answers because it bugs me that I don't have those names. No, that's okay. Holding, I, yeah, Billy Beck holding. was cool. He's a, he has a very familiar face, and it, like as soon as I, it, as soon as I like had that one link, I was like, oh my god, yes! And I I I knew all the roles that he played in all those films I had listed off. I was like, this is incredible. <laughs> Brian James is in that episode. Um, so if you don't know who that is, he's a very recognizable character actor. So again, mummy daddy is a lot of fun, but I was glad to have a mummy daddy connection. Okay, cool. Um, so these, these next few actors, I'll just, I'll preface with, they didn't have large roles, but I, I feel like they're notable. Um, Eddie Barth, he plays one of the sailors that's on tour, uh, through the wax museum, only twilight zone appearance, first credit. That's, that's notable. At least this was his first acting credit. He was also in the Amityville horror. And then he did the voice of Doug, the pug in the men in black cartoon. Yeah. He did a lot of animation voiceover and I wasn't sure which of the two sealers he was in the episode until the second time through. He has a very distinct voice. He's the one that's like, let's get out of here. You know, like he, uh, I'm sorry. I said, I said, Doug, the pug. I meant Frank, the pug, whatever. <laughs> it's a pug. Doug the pug talks. is famous too. <laughs> <laughs> get your pug straight. Um, yeah, yeah, very, very recognizable voice. Um, he was also in shaft in 71. So that's about, you know, that's what I had there, but I didn't, you know, he, a lot of cartoons. Yeah. So then, uh, Craig Curtis is our next, Sailor, um, only Twilight Zone appearance as well. Uh, and he was in Death Wish 4, and that's all I had for him. Yeah, another Death Wish connection on this show. Got to get more Chuck Bronson in here. So, yeah. 
Um, I'm glad that uh, we have a Death Wish 3 and Death Wish 4 connection with us. Yeah. So to round out what I had here, we have Phil Chambers. He plays the gas man that comes along. Uh, only Twilight Zone appearance. But yeah. he did 30, 39 episodes of The the Grey Ghost and then 15 episodes of Bonanza. Yeah, I had a lot of TV questions for him. Um, that's about yeah. all I had, yeah. So, yep, that's it for my cast. Okay, last one I have here um, that you may not have picked up because like, he's in at the very, very, very end is Marcel Hillier as the guide. He's the, the French-sounding dude at the end um, of the episode. Okay. Uh, this is his second episode of Twilight Zone. He was also in a most unusual camera with a very annoying bit of how you say, and he would just like go and just say what he was going to say anyway because he knows he knows English. Um, uh, his story is weird because he survived – um, being Jewish because he was actually German born and Jewish and he survived being Jewish in, in Germany during World War II. Um, but then he ended up in prison for being, you know, Jewish in Germany in World War II. Uh, but then that all kind of started coming to an end and he, um, stayed in prison because he was, uh, they, they, uh, had found, um, previous allegations of statutory rape. Like, so that's not great. At all. This guy's kind of a piece of shit. But after he got out of there, he um, just decided to act French. And he became like the quintessential Frenchman in all things like TV shows and when they have him in movies. So you got this guy who sounds French, looks French, German born. Um, yeah, kind of a, like, you know, went through some horrific stuff, but also kind of did some shitty things and then is uh, pretending to be a nationality he's not. So there you go. That's a good story. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, still a douche, but yeah, there <laughs> <it> is. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, I'm sure we, I'm sure I get more into that on the episode most unusual camera, but yeah, that's our cast and crew. So, uh, yeah, let's just get into this. We'll let Sterling take it away. Martin Lombard Sonescu, a gentleman, the dedicated curator of Murder's Row in Ferguson's Wax Museum. He ponders the reasons why ordinary men are driven to commit mass murder. What Mr. Sinescu does not know is that the groundwork has already been laid for his own special kind of madness and torment, found only in the Twilight Zone. All right, there we go. That's uh, Serling's intro. Uh, it is, yeah, I... I, it it saddens me that I feel like I mean, he's doing his he's doing his best to to write these you know intros for episodes that like for season four because he's not there so they bring him in for like a whole whack of these things. I feel like we end up losing some some of the essence with the way the setup is, and I hope going into season five there's a little bit more uh, familiarity with him with his intros because this is about it's it's not it's not bad it's just kind of there. It's it's weird in the sense that there is a little bit of chemistry that's lost. And like, I've been going back and forth between the episodes that we've been watching recently and older episodes. And there just seems to be a, a lot more fun to finding him in like the place settings and that, and like him just popping up somewhere. Like, and I know we keep on making that joke of like, where is he going to be now? And I, I, I kind of do miss that. Yeah. Like, so there's a, a production photo of this episode where, uh, you see the the four wax figures and where they end up you know, being located. We'll talk about that in a minute. Where Sterling standing in the middle of them smiling, and I thought the way the picture looked, I thought they did a wax figure of him as kind of like a joke. But it's just him smiling with them, and it's like I kind of just wish he would have been like one of the exhibits, like you know, like over in a corner, 
<laughs> like he just like steps off the podium and like you know lights a cigarette, starts talking. That would have been amazing. That would have been pretty sweet. I w- I would have dug that. Yeah. So. So yeah, let's just uh, we'll just get into this. So um, this uh, this episode starts with uh, the owner of the the this wax museum kind of going through the tour, describing Cleopatra. Um, you know, w- wax museums are inherently weird places. Um, have you ever been to a wax museum? Yes, um, uh, my wife and I went on a trip with our friends to uh, Boston and Salem, and uh, there was a a bunch of uh, wax museums that we had went to out there. Really strange, really informative, but uh, it's kind of creepy to be around the things. The the quality isn't as good as like what you would see at like Las Vegas one and that, but they're still fun. Yeah, I went to. There was um, what do you call them? the ones that are out in Vegas? I forget the actual. There's a there's a like a, a brand name. Like it's not it's not like uh, Madame Tussauds or whatever, but it's that kind of thing, right? So. Um, we went to one of the smaller ones there cause it was adjacent to, um, the, uh, Venetian and it was, it was okay, but it's like, cause Mary, Mary went, my, my wife really wanted to go. And so we went, um, it, she also has an inherent fear of mannequins and wax figures. So it was one of those things where she really wanted to go, but she didn't want to get near any of them. <laughs> Like, so it was this constant, like, you know, look at that. She's like, yeah, it's wonderful. I'm over here. You know, <laughs> like just, um, I don't know what it is. Maybe she's just worried that one of them might have a garrote and then eventually attack her. I don't know, but, uh, it's just a weird thing. And then the one, when the one we went to had like a Marvel experience. So there's a big wax figure of like the Hulk. So it's like, yeah, I don't think this is done like, you know, with reference photos in real life, you know, it's just, it, um, it was cool, but it's like, I, I think with our day and age and where there's a lot of opportunity to, to meet the celebrity that you, you want to meet and you're going to pay for it. The idea of going to a wax museum and seeing like, like, well, this, this is them kind of, it feels a little weird now to me. Cause I could see back then maybe, you know, people make, cause if you, if you don't have like access to the internet and videos and films and all this stuff, you get your entertainment and information where you can. And I can see why a wax museum would be informative. It just, it just feels, it feels weird. That's where I'm going with that. Inherently, it does have a weird feel to it now. I mean, here we are like probably 60, 70 years after they really were like a focal point of like us consumers and that, and like making the whole, wax museum a thing and a place to go to for you know fun to check out Uh, i mean i think that they're they have progressed greatly in the artistry and how they look because the places i went out to in boston they look pretty hit man (laughs) i'm not gonna lie uh but i mean it was still cool i mean like some of the displays that they had had been running for like over 30 years and it's still there's they're still fun to have there, but I don't know how I really feel about when you break it all down. It's 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 unusual. I mean, even some of the celebrities I have met, there's there are wax displays of them on the, you know, at some museum somewhere, and it's like eh, I don't know if I would really want to take a picture with it now that I've taken a picture with the actual person. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a little weird. I mean, I, I think that like um, the the novelty of it had a. I mean, I mean, clearly there's still museums out there, right? So, but I think there was 
a certain time and place for it. Uh, just because again, the visualization understanding, like, like if I, if I say to you, Samuel L. Jackson, you know what he looks like, but if it was like, you know, like, I don't know, back then, like maybe you didn't know, not, I'm not talking like 63. I'm talking like before that, like Mark Twain, maybe you didn't know what he looked like. And you go and see someone looks like him and it's like, Oh, okay. You can start kind of putting that together. So I get why they exist. It's just that if you start your story off with a wax museum and then that goes into the murderer's row, I'm like, you know, none of this is going to go well for anybody. So that I feel like that the episode established that pretty early on. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting museum in the fact that it goes from ancient Egypt to murderers, like (laughs) serial killers and murderers. Like, okay, that's a kind of a weird transfer over to times but okay i i wish that this was the same museum that uh, robert duvall was going to during his lunch break and that this is just what happens when you turn left as opposed to turning right and going upstairs and seeing like the miniature dollhouse that's what i want yeah i, I was kind of thinking it might have been the same place for a, a moment because we've they have repurposed sets for multiple episodes and i was like oh, okay so we have the egyptian display it's going to transfer over to like a different display that's of the same museum. And it's like, no, this is definitely not the same museum. Yeah. It, it, yeah. The, the whole Egyptian thing, you know, makes you think like, Oh, it could have been the same one. Like, where's the tiny people at? I want to see the tiny people. Um, yeah. I want to see how Robert Duvall's doing. I hope he's okay. Uh, but yeah. Uh, so this murderer's row, which I, I like that there's a sciences murderers row and then you have like, um, you know, the, the, the owner museum set up the whole thing and the way Martin comes in is very creepy. Um, so immediately he's very genuine, but that's also very off putting considering what he's telling people about. Yeah. It, it, it's a really weird position that he's in. I mean, he knows that the tour is coming through, but instantly, and I've been at, places like this um when i went to boston where they set somebody up to be part of the exhibit and then they tell you about everything that's going on it's really interesting and it, it brings an element of, of fun to it but uh yeah he's he's underneath the albert uh hicks uh display at this moment when we meet him yeah and this time kind of like you know he's talking all about what's going on and um mentioning you know, who these people are, what they did. And then someone asks him about like, well, wh- what about their motivation? And he gives this really like, like he, he takes a long way to get around basically saying, well, there's someone out there today that knows the motivation. Like, well, who is it? It's like someone basically he's like, there's going to be a murderer out there that we don't know who they are. They're walking among us right now. We'll learn about them someday. Enjoy your tour. Like it was a weird thing. Yeah. Well, this is definitely some some person that uh, probably would fit in well with my friend friend group because he takes his job very seriously. And we find this out more along the way where he has a lot of knowledge, especially about these uh, these different people from from history. So like as we we meet him, he's also going to be the tour guide for the next moment throughout this display area and so he he gives us a brief synopsis of albert hicks um to dive deep into my notes um i so to give a little bit more of a knowledge of what my interests are um i i dive really deep into true crime stuff and that so this whole episode is really fun for me 
I I know these um, these people from history and that, especially you know Jack the Ripper, which we're going to talk about in a moment. But would, would you consider them so, your friends? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Like they're like they are not my <laughs> friends. They, they, were, they were definitely Martin's friends. <laughs> this is so to, to give greater uh, uh, understanding. I would definitely be like giddy about going through this this exhibit. I would be like one of the people who'd been like, "Oh my god." Yes. So, um, so Albert Hicks, uh, was a triple murderer and one of the last persons executed for piracy in the United States. It is possible that Hicks killed hundreds of people and he and an accomplice typically killed the victims and stayed at their, and stayed and on the move, spending the money on alcohol, uh, prostitutes and fine clothes until it ran out. It is, uh, he is also known for, uh, uh, other crimes as well, but, um, he was hanged in, uh, in 1860. So the knowledge of like how many people he actually killed isn't really there, but he, when he told the recollects of like his past crimes and that he embellished quite a bit, but no one really truly knows how many people Hmm. he ended up murdering with his accomplice, but he was a real scumbag. So. Yeah. Okay. And also had like an Abraham Lincoln beard. So I'll point that out. Yep. Uh, and a hat. So it looks, he looks like asshole Abraham Lincoln, the whole episode. Yeah. So then um, moving on, uh, Martin takes him over to the next exhibit, which is. Uh, do, 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 do. It's uh, 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 Landrew, uh, I think, right? Uh, it's uh, w- William Burke and uh, William Hare. Okay. So, and um, these guys were. A, a couple of scumbags as well. Um, they murdered 16 people over a period of 10 months in 1828 uh, in Scotland. Uh, what they ended up doing was they were suffocating these per, uh, these people, and which was basically called burking. Uh, they coined the term afterwards. And then they were selling the bodies to um, local um, uh, scientists and that for medical purposes. So they were, they were basically saying that they had found these people because they committed suicide in that and then selling their bodies for profit. That was, well, that was kind of a big deal then not to get too much into this, but like since, uh, medical schools and doctoring and all that, like was in like, like severe need of like bodies and skeletons. Like mm-hmm. th- there was a lot of things that happened where people would, uh, be sold, uh, because they were collateral damage because people were like either digging up graves or killing people like H.H. H. Holmes did a lot of that stuff, too, where he would just sell the skeletons and things. And and, you know, there's there's unknown am- amounts of skeletons that are still out there being used for medical schools that may not have been there willingly. That's messed up. Yeah, that they, they definitely were one of these groups that were profiting from that. And when you actually were talking about the, uh, the world's fair, uh, earlier, I instantly thought of HH H. Holmes because of the, all the subject matter that we were going to talk about here. Um, yeah. It's kind of surprising. He's not here amongst the murderers row. Right. Uh, and so our next exhibit is going to be the Landro yeah. exhibit. Yeah. So Landro is next. And, um, he talks about, uh, him for a moment, but again, they don't really deep dive into any of this stuff. I don't think they had time, but 
Landreau was uh, killed at least seven women between December 1915 and 1919, um, and at least three other women, plus a young man and at a house that he had rented from December 1914 and August 1915. Now, he, again, is one of those people that they don't truly understand how many people he had murdered, but there's a possibility that it's for over 20 people at this point. Hmm. Um, another scumbag who existed in France and he just, he, he strangled them and he was just a real piece of work. And then he, uh, was caught and, um, he was taken out as well. Uh, I, 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 I don't have the note of how he was executed, but he was taken out. He was dipped he was in wax prison. and sold to a museum in America. That's what happened. That's not true. It, <laughs> the guy that they picked, the actor that they picked to play him on the exhibit looked exactly like him. I'm That's like, crazy. oh my God, I think they actually did get the, the dead body of this dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And then, uh, and then you, the last one you say was Jack the Ripper, which I mean, you know, if people don't Those know that name guy. and aren't familiar with him, then boy, you got some reading to do. Yeah, for sure. I, that, that was definitely one of those ones that they, they saved the the more notable for last um he was he obviously very infamous and there is a lot of unknown things about him and a lot of like hearsay about him but yeah interesting enough so yeah so that um that brings us to martin kind of closing out his tour he stands next to the wax figure of uh, jack the ripper and gives a closing speech and there's a, a button on the floor that he presses and when he does um, the, the wax figure actually makes a stabbing motion towards his direction and it scares the audience. He freaks out. Like he, he was about to get stabbed, but he knew what was going on, obviously. Yeah. And it, it was that you could tell that this is a routine he's done repeatedly, but you know, it's one of those things where if you're a good enough storyteller and you get people kind of, in, you know, like just hypnotized by what you're saying that, you, you, you go for that gotcha moment, you know, and it, it is very effective where the, like the two sailors are like, let's get out of here. You know, <laughs> like type of thing. Like this is like, they don't want to be like, were you scared? I wasn't scared. I totally, that, you, that, you peed my pants. Let's just get out of here right now. You know? <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it, it was, it was fun for him. He, he, he's got to perfect it at this point. It was, it was, I would have, I would have adored this, uh, this section <laughs> of the museum. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So we get Martin is like, he, he cares for his characters. Uh, after that happens, um, Ferguson, you know, talks like there's like, I think there's a scene break there, but cause yeah, it's when we get Sterling's intro uh, at that point. But then we come back to, um, Martin, um, like he's like cleaning up, uh, Landrew's like clothing, I think talking and he's talking to Ferguson as Ferguson comes in mentioning need new clothes. This is a little worn out you know, basically saying like, it's been a while. These guys need to get cleaned up. They, they need to look good. They need to look good. You know? And Ferguson's like, yeah, you know, we should talk about that. And anytime you have like your boss say, you know, that's not, can, he's kind of my office. That's never, that's never going to be a good talk. Never. Especially when the dude's trying to clean up the exhibits and everything like busy work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> boss comes in to interrupt you on doing busy work. It's, it's not a good idea. It, you know, it like the it basically sets up a bad premise for everything else that's going to happen. Yeah. So then we find out that Ferguson's actually selling the property 
Uh, and he, like closing the museum, uh, he didn't tell Martin that today was actually the last day, which I, it's kind of a dick move. Just going to throw that out there. Uh, where he's like, well, all, you know, all, what about all the tours? He's like, well, you were done giving tours. So I, I, I would have been like, and thank goodness you did that Jack the Ripper gag like, well, the last time, because you didn't know that it would be the last time. Um, so yeah, they're closing place is going to be like, uh, like bulldozed and turned to a supermarket. Um, and Martin is just kind of first, he doesn't believe it. Then he's trying to plead with uh, Ferguson to be like, no, no, maybe it's the location. Maybe we can do this or whatever. But Ferguson just basically tells him like straight up, like, you know, I've done this for like 30 years. You've been one of my best employees. You've never missed like a tour. Um, we've been hemorrhaging money. It's time for us to move on type of thing where he's like, I, I need, I need to do this. And Martin still is grasping at every possibility. What if he can do to save it and his exhibit? Yeah, it's kind of a bummer for Martin because you can tell that he really loves his job and he he he's like wanting to give any possibility like ah, I take him to my place, I'll take him wherever. What what do I need to do? And even like the uh, the idea of doing something else with the business you know, Ferguson's not interested. He, he, he says he's, he's too old. He's, he's not, he doesn't have the energy for it anymore. It's like, I get it. You've been beaten down because you, like you said, hemorrhaging money. It's like, you can't keep a, a business afloat when it's not making any money at all. Yeah, and he even said that like today's person, um, they, they have too many real fears. And he, he, he says specifically after like the concentration camps of World War II, everything going on, he's like, this this doesn't get people the same way it once did. So basically saying like, you know, the world's a lot scarier place than just our room full of murderers, you know? And um, I think it's important for him to have said that for the audience to hear just because um, Martin sees something in these figures that no one else does. And he, he sees the people inside them, which I would argue is like, that should be all the more reason why you should maybe not work this job anymore, but that's just me. Um, but he, he actually sees them for like their value their artistry. Um, you find out that these five figures were, are kind of one of a kind in the sense that this European master of wax art or wax figures made these specifically and never made any other pieces outside of Europe. So there's kind of this history of like, these are unique and they just can't be tossed aside. So Martin is worried about the figures and Ferguson can't give him a good answer about it. Yeah. It's a, it's a real bummer for Martin, but um, like you were saying though, Ferguson understands that there's no money to be made in this kind of exhibit anymore, like this kind of business and the true horror is all around them. And it, it kind of speaks on a, a a greater platform, even today's like uh, kind of times, where people try to make the argument that you know people are desensitized by film and desensitized by video games, and the world is too traumatizing that people don't take anything for face value anymore. Like we don't understand horror now, true horror. So it was interesting to hear that from Ferguson. And this is, shit, 1963. And that concept really does live on. Yeah, absolutely. So 
yeah, Martin basically makes the deal of like, I'll buy them from you. Uh, I'll, I'll protect them. I will, you know, I'll put them in my basement and I will get an air conditioner so they don't get too hot and I'll turn the heater up or I'll buy a heater as well. If it gets too cold, I will, I will bathe them and give them walks or whatever. He just like went on and on, you know? Uh, and so that's the agreement. Uh, he ends up like either borrowing them from Ferguson until Ferguson can find a home for him. I think the intent is for him to buy them eventually because he wants to open his own museum. He, you know, Martin doesn't think too far ahead. We'll just put it that way. Uh, we get this moment then after that where he's sitting at his uh, his uh, dinner table and his wife is like made him breakfast and he's like, like just anxious. He's like, do you like they should be here by now? What's going on? I should have ridden with them. And I wrote in my notes here that uh, Martin is like the ultimate like wax figure helicopter mom. Like that's what he is this entire time. This he's just so worried about them. I, I got the idea that he was like the dad from a Christmas story waiting for the fragile. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. He's like, Oh, they're going to mess it up in shipping. Uh, so yeah, the truck comes and, uh, uh, you know, he's worried cause the, he's the, like, they might be moving the boxes too much. He's like, Oh, it's getting too warm outside. And the, the two like delivery guys are just like, just, they're just like uh, kind of annoyed, but also like, what are you going to do? We're here to, to give you these five large boxes. What do you, what do you want us to do? Um, and I like that they cut to the basement with the boxes inside the basement. Uh, you saw the size of the door getting in there, like from the outside. I have no idea how these crates ended up in this basement. Like I, I get a soundstage and they just moved them on, but from a bringing them down that narrow staircase that's behind the house that you see and that door, I just, that, that is the real science fiction of this episode. How'd they get the crates in there? Well, especially the way that uh, Martin is freaking out, like, don't, don't, don't uh, move it like that. Don't tilt it like that. It's like, what did they just have to go through to get those things down into the basement? I'm sure <laughs> jostling it around for a instant is way less than what they just had to do to get it down in there. Yeah. <laughs> There's probably a whole nother hour of footage that we didn't see of him just being like, no, 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 down this, no, this way, turn, turn, turn. No, you're doing it wrong. You know, like over and over and over again, that would be uh, <laughs> not compelling, but that's probably been shot. Uh, but yeah, well, go ahead. And well, yeah, I was going to say like the, the guys who are unloading it, you could tell are fed up at that moment. Too. <laughs> yeah. They're just annoyed. Um, which you I mean they should be, uh, so yeah, so they end up in the basement. Um, th- there's just the weird moment where where Emma is in the basement with them, and she's like, "These boxes are huge," and he's like, "Well, yeah, they're figures. They're like the same size of us." And then she, and so he's talking to her like, "I don't know how long they've been married. I have a feeling it's been a while." And he's also been working at the museum for quite a while too, because that was established in the previous scene. Has she never visited him at work and understand what he does every day? Yeah, it makes me question his demeanor when he would come home and be just with her. Like, is he freaking out the entire time, like worrying about how they look? I'm I'm sure if like the technology existed, he would have some kind of uh, cameras set up and he could just monitor them the entire time. Yeah, he would have like a like a baby monitor and just be like, oh, <laughs> it, it sounds too loud or it sounds too hot in there. I got to go fix it. Um, but yeah, he, I just, I just made it sound like Emma never, never knew that he worked around these figures like all day long. Um, but then, um, there's the moment like he, like, you know, they go to install the air conditioner and, and she's kind of like, well, what, where, where do we get the money for this? He's like, don't worry about it. And then she's like, how am I going to do the laundry down here? He's like, you can't do laundry down here. It's going to be too humid. Clearly Martin again, you know, he's thought this out. Not at all. 
and his wife is the one to made to suffer for it. And that's, you know, it, but you start to get some sense of, um, or more sense of like Martin's like headspace, which is tilted from the beginning. Like he's well-meaning, but he, he's only seeing the world that he wants to see right now. And that is just him taking care of these figures that he views as his, his friends and like his charge. Yeah. And his priority level is like really skewed <laughs> Yeah, because not only does his, he lose his job, but he had to pay for these things to get moved to his property. He paid for the air conditioning guy to come out. And now he just, he enveloped the entire basement area to the point where she has to go to a laundromat and pay money to get their laundry done. I mean, to be fair, what the heck? this is a lot of what I did to my wife whenever I was like, I want to start podcasting. She's like, what? And I was like, I've already bought the equipment. I'm going to get an air conditioner. It's fine. I've quit my job. Like, we'll figure it out. No, that's not at all what happened. But um, I mean, would I keep bringing in equipment being like, I'll figure it out. It's fine. Yes. Uh, was it to this degree? No. For now. Now that we're moving, changing houses, the, the sky's the limit. <laughs> like <laughs> now we discover the real reason you bought the house. <laughs> yeah. The, well, Hey, you know, uh, has a pretty good basement. I'll just say that. No. Um, so I like that. He was like, so he's like, go to the laundromat, leave me to my friends. He specifically says that. And then, um, then we cut to like, like sometime later and all the figures are out of the boxes and they're all set up with the air conditioning running, which credit also the episode that they do. It, it, it's very twilight zone sixties where it, there's sometimes too much music. Sometimes like you just want to let some things breathe the constant running sound of the AC. It, it, it gets under your skin, like in regards to like, it's a constant machine noise, you know? I mean, we all know what AC sounds like, but it, it still feels a little weird running the entire time. It makes it feel, it makes it feel real, you know? And I think that's very effective through the rest of this episode. Yeah, definitely. Because when we find other moments in this episode, it is, it's almost like a storytelling piece. Yeah. And there's moments where there's no, there's no music. You used to hear the AC and it's very effective, but I just put in my notes here. The first time we see them all like assembled in the basement with like the lights on, I, I wrote all caps here. Welcome to Terry's basement. That's what I wrote in my notes. I don't have a basement, but yet, yet. <laughs> <laughs> but don't tell me, don't tell me if you didn't have the opportunity in your basement to have, um, half a spirit store set up, like you wouldn't do it. Let's move on. Okay. <laughs> Don't exploit me. You're like, look, look, step on the button. His knife moves. It's amazing. And I'm like, how much money you spent on that? You're like, it's not important. You know, like, <laughs> so, you anyway. know, like when I was a kid, I, just quick story. One of the things that I look forward to greatly when I was a kid, my grandmother always said that if she won the lottery, she was going to buy me a, a mechanized dinosaur for me like straight out of like universal studios mechanized dinosaur i still want that i mean just I, saying that's real, still that, a dream it's it's it, it can be a reality if you work hard enough and believe that i believe you should have that yeah, yeah. Al along with wax serial killers so well that too you know um, <laughs> yeah. 
so yeah, it just the way it's all set up too is like he has like like I like that uh, Burke and Hare who whenever you first saw them they were like uh like in the middle of murdering a woman in a bed which well like, yeah forget that figure she's not important I guess just you know it's the sixties even even the women wax figures are forgotten pretty quickly that's terrible um but the way that they're set up like I like that uh they still kept the same body position and they're still kind of facing each other. Uh, but it's the way the scene looks with the lighting and it, this being shot on black and white film, it's, it's very cool and very, um, very eerie. Uh, uh, so I'll give that setup is as creepy as I'll get out. Yeah. The starkness of being in a basement as well. And there's just enough, uh, enough light that, um, illuminates the displays down there, which I'm not really quite sure if you got it air conditioned that you need all that light, but it still works for, for well, displaying. If you're worried about heat, it's like maybe the one thing you don't have on is those bright floodlights going on on the uh, on the figures. I don't know. It feels like that's going to pump out some uh, temperature. I don't. That just feels a little weird to me. But what do I know? I haven't had that many wax figures in my basement yet. <laughs> right. But yeah, it's it's still it, the contrast is really interesting, and I I enjoy it a lot. And even his wife um, says that every time she comes down there. She has like a mini heart attack essentially because it is such it's so jarring for her to see them even down there in her in her basement. Yeah, she's um she she's unnerved, she doesn't like them. Uh and then this is like there's this constant the thread of her voicing her opinions to Martin, Martin either trying to make her feel better about something or kind of dismissing it. And at like one point he's trying to tell her about like, well, these are your friends. You get to know them. And he goes to like almost basically do the tour for her and she just walks away and he's still talking. That's effective. And then she leaves and goes to visit her brother. Um, and he, but like, so Martin's still in the basement, you know, I, I know he realizes that she's gone, but it's like, we left him for a moment and we go meet the brother who, uh, reminds me of Nick Offerman. I thought I was really hoping that if this ever gets updated, the brother needs to be Ron Swanson. Joke of Ron Swanson. <laughs> okay. I, I guess that works. No, look at the face. He looks kind of like Ron Swanson a little bit. Maybe it's just me, but whatever. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I get it. Totally. <laughs> yeah. I just, I would love it then. Yeah. I just love it with Ron Swanson in the update. But, uh, so, so, um, she's talking to Dave. Dave tells her to basically, you know, make Martin choose between her and the figures, which I'm like, that's maybe not the best thing for, cause she's told you repeatedly that like, you know, he's been choosing the figures over me. So I don't know how that's going to go, but you know, she borrows money from him for groceries and, but you could tell Dave, you know, he cares for his sister. Uh, but he's just, he's confused as to why Martin is like so devoted to this. And he's like, what's so important about these things? And Emma says something revealing where she's like, well, they're special, but they're important to him. So it, it doesn't matter what anybody says to him. The figures are important to him. And that's, that's the, that's not, you're not going to shake him loose that way. Right. And I, I could understand if like, this is taken to a certain point and maybe there's a misunderstanding. She is totally in the right here. Oh yeah. Martin has gone overboard at this point. Yeah. Like I, I'm, it's, it's like those people that have like 8 million pop figures. Really? I don't know if those are ever going to hold their value and pretty sure you might lose your marriage. If you have that many in a house, you know, like you see those videos there, but it's like, I got all these pop figures. I'm like, yeah, why don't we see your significant other in these videos as well? Just going to throw that out there. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm being hypothetical, but yeah. So Dave also suggests to her that, uh, you know, 
you could just turn off the air conditioner and just destroy the things and then it'd be all over. I'm like, that will save the marriage. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Sabotage something that he has such an uh, adoration for that might work. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll call that plan B. How about, <laughs> so um she she comes back uh from the grocery store and and martin finds her and is like oh you walked away as i was talking to you and she's like yeah i did and, and she's putting groceries away he's like wait i didn't think we had any money left it's like he's not saying that as in like oh good you found money he's like more he's suspicious of like hey where'd those groceries come from because you told me we don't have money uh and she admits to going to her brother for the groceries uh grocery money and he gets and martin gets a little frustrated with that uh, but there's like this back and forth about like, you know, she actually says to him, like, I want them out now. And I think he makes some kind of comment during all this. He's like, I'm not the only husband who brings his work home, which I thought was a funny line. I'm like, yeah, not like this though. You know, like, you know, I've worked retail. I didn't like be like, you know, I, I should probably bring the mannequins home with me just in case, you know, I need to make sure they have a place to stay and have adventures at nighttime. Like I've never done that. Like this customer said that they were going to arrive at nine. I'm still hoping that they come over to our house and get the same <laughs> yeah, yeah. videos I, that they were hoping to yeah, get. I, I brought their uh, pre-order over here. So I'm hoping they'll come pick it up. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. So, uh, but uh, she goes down to the, like goes down to the basement to unplug the AC. Actually, I'm sorry. It goes, they, they have a fight and then it's nighttime and she wakes up in the middle of the night and she's actually going to go turn off the AC, like what her brother suggested. And th that's actually, it's actually a very creepy scene of her navigating through the figures and how they keep showing these still shots of like the faces of the figures. And then she goes to touch the air conditioner. And that's when we actually get one of the better, better moments of the episode. Yeah. Suddenly um, we, she kind of turns back in the same instant that the, the Jack, the uh, Ripper display is coming at her with a knife. And it's, it's kind of a stark image again, like of her, just her face, um, reacting to the moment. So we don't know exactly, exactly what happened at that moment. But, uh, the next scene is of Martin coming downstairs and trying to look for Emma and he he finds her body basically at the feet of Jack the Ripper. So when he looks up, he even sees blood on the knife. So he finds blood on Emma and he finds blood on the knife and understands somehow Jack stabs her. Yeah, but it's like, you know, he, he's almost like, you know, I don't know, like. Oh man, you why? <laughs> As opposed to you killed my wife. It's more like, oh geez, Jack. I you know, oh you know, like you get that kind of vibe from him, and then we get the, we immediately come. It's a commercial break, and we have Martin going all John Wick on his basement floor, like just busting it down. Which credit to him, like I, I that that basement, the actual like uh, concrete portion of it, it didn't look that thick, but breaking a basement floor to get to the dirt below has to be a hell of a thing. Um, but he actually digs a grave for his wife and he's like talking about like, ah, oh, you know, Emma, I'm sorry. I didn't, you know, you deserve better than this, but you know, if I go to the cops, are they really going to believe that Jack the Ripper killed you? And that's, that's weird. And then, 
if you know if I go and they convict me, it's like who's going to take care of these guys? I'm like, wow, this episode went a direction I was not expecting. It got dark, like weirdly dark, and I liked it. Yeah, truly, I liked it as well. <laughs> like <laughs> it, it was one of those episodes that didn't, for my understanding, fit the times. Like this felt way darker than what the sixties has given us. Especially as far as uh, Twilight Zone. Well, I kept getting, and it's been a long time since I've seen the original film. I kept getting like a little shop of horrors vibe from this, where you know the guy is put upon. He has a thing he's protecting. No one understands it the, like the way he does or believes he does. And as it's still showing him that it it, it can't be trusted, his devotion's still there to a point. And so, the, like, I'm not comparing this to the musical. I'm talking the original one with uh, Jack Nicholson, right? Like, and it, and it's been forever since I've seen it. And that came out around the same time as this, right? Like, I think um, the original Shop of Horrors maybe came out before this. I'll look that up as, as we're talking about it. Yeah, it's around the same time. And I I, I, I can see that, truly. And I 1960. So that actually existed before before this. Um, but, yeah, that's that was the vibe I got from it. Yeah, it, it's a... I mean, we had some other dark uh, movies that had came out around the time. I mean, Psycho came out before this as well. And obviously, the the storytelling that and that was super, super dark as well. But as far as Twilight Zone episodes are considered, this is probably the most horrific that I had seen or remember seeing for a long time. And I am still revisiting a lot of the ep- uh, old episodes as well. But man, this is right up my alley. I mean, like for me, this felt so much more like a uh, a tales from the crypt type yeah. episode because they were able to push boundaries to a point where, well, I think that even showing the, blood, the audience yeah. is more acceptable. Well, even showing blood the way they're showing in these like, like later season episodes surprises me. Um, Cause if you go back to the first couple of seasons, you didn't see that. And it's like, so that's kind of loosening up a little bit. Um, you know? So yeah, it, it is. Yeah. It, just the, but you're seeing this guy that clearly has been a little off kilter from the beginning. Just like, I was not expecting, I was expecting a little bit more, a little bit more, um, sense of loss for him with his wife being dead, you know, like I get that she stood in opposition to him, but it's like, it's your wife. All right. Guess got to bury in the basement. It's more of an inconvenience. Sorry, guys. Sorry, friends. I'll take care of this in a minute. And then I will uh, patch it all up just in time for the gas man just to come barging in. Yeah, it, it, it was like a really off, off, like off scene for me. I didn't expect him to react the way he was. Like, yeah. It was interesting. But then the gas man comes in and uh, I just... He's crop dusting the place. That's not true, but he's still an idiot. Um, but he comes in, he's like, Oh, look what like working on the floor. I know it's like oddly in the shape of like, you know, a grave. And he's like, and Martin's like, yeah, there was a crack, you know, about the size of my wife. I, it's fine. It's fine. I took care of it, you know? Um, and then, then gas man's like, what is going on down here? And he sees all the figures and he's just blown away. And he's like, look, there's even blood on this knife. And that's when Martin's like, Oh yeah, that thing I looked at earlier, I should probably clean that. Uh, but the gas man believes it's all part of the show and he's just impressed with it. Yeah. And he even asks if like his wife can, can come by later and check out the scene. And of course, Martin is not interested. He wants to g- get more time to clean things up. And I, I think he's in that like protective mode now where it's like, all right, 
I want to keep people away from the scene now. I don't want anybody else to see what I got going on down here. <laughs> yeah. So he gets the gas man out the door and then uh, he's still doing something. That's when uh, Dave comes to the basement door and tries to open it. And uh, I like that like, Dave's like, why well, you know, let me in it. And, uh, and, and Martin's like, nah, I can't, I, I can't, uh, uh, I have a bunch of stuff stacked up against that door. <laughs> like it just, it is the most like obvious thing I would say where I'm like, Oh, I can't, uh, there's a, Oh, the snakes, like meet me up front. You know, whatever. That's probably what I would have said. Um, you know, at panicking after, you know, seeing my wife dead, I'd probably tell people there's snakes by the door. That's my go-to. Um, but he gets them upstairs to open the door and that, and Dave, uh, is kind of like, like kind of seeing what happened because he believes that his sister put the ultimatum to Martin. And so their conversation's a little, um, a little awkward at the start. It's awkward throughout, but Dave thinks one thing's going on. Martin thinks one thing's going on and their, their interchanges are a little weird. Um, and for some reason I actually kind of come out on the side of Martin because Dave doesn't live in that house and he's asking a lot of particular questions. And he comes, he comes in there like a battle ax too. Yeah. He's like beating down the door. I, I was like, who the hell has the right to be banging on somebody's door like that? No matter what, even if they aren't home, why are you slamming on their door? Like something's wrong. You have no idea what's going on. There's no pretense of like a problem or anything like that. I, I just felt like he was, an abrasive dick as soon as he came through the door too. Yeah. And so like his, his, you know, worrying about his sister's justified and him suspecting Martin of not telling the truth. I get, but him, you know, saying, Oh, well, where's my sister at? And he's like, well, she, she's on a trip with, you know, visiting my sister and he's asking questions and you know, whatever. And Dave's like trying to get to the bottom of things. But when Dave is like, Oh, so, uh, yeah. So you got rid of the figures and there were like, so Martin said something like it's been addressed. It's been taken care of. And I thought that was kind of a funny sentence, but then Dave hears the air conditioner running. He's like, well, why is the air conditioner still running? And Martin's like, I don't like, he basically was like, I don't have to tell you what I'm doing in my own house. And I kind of, I agree with him though. He's trying to hide the murder of his wife. You know, it gets a little murky, but he doesn't, he doesn't have to tell, he doesn't have to tell Dave why he's running an air conditioner in his house. No, exactly. And that that's one of the things that bothered me greatly. It's like he was literally about to walk out the door and then all of a sudden it's like this moment of silence. And that's the storytelling of the, the air conditioner. All of yeah. a sudden he hears this. Um, it's like, how do you know what that is? Like there's other machines that possibly could be in the house, but instantly jumps to what's going on in the basement. Why aren't you let me down there? Why is this door locked? you need to tell me anything and everything about what's going on in your house. Like, who are you dude? Like, I think the scene could have been handled better if Dave was asking questions, which, you know, he can. And if Martin was dodging them and then, and then you'd have Dave being like, okay, well you don't, you don't have to tell me anything, but just so you know, I'll be back with people that you will have to answer to. If I don't, if I don't talk to my sister, you know, type of thing, like threaten to get the cops involved or something. Right. But the whole uh, the whole sequence is just awkward. Where he's like, "Why won't you let me in your basement?" It's like you don't live here. Like <laughs> it's just you know whatever. So I was kind of hoping Dave would get it, and you know he, he shortly does. But so uh, Dave Dave comes back, uh, you know, picks open the door with a knife or whatever, gets into the basement, um, you know, sees the sees the fresh concrete on the floor, 
and he's actually like he's kneeling below Abraham Lincoln um, and trying to. But you see him starting to kind of put some things together about what's going on. Um, and then there's the moment there where you don't see um, it's not Abraham Lincoln, but what's his name that you you've identified. Yes. Yeah. When you see him, you see, to see his face, you see the ax, but it cuts back to um, to Dave and he. <laughs> I wish I could make a gif of his face when the camera pushes in. It's just like the oh, like look on his face, and it's amazing. I don't think it was meant to be funny, but it made me laugh really hard. Yeah, the same. I was like, that instant wouldn't be like that, but that's that's really fun in like a comic book kind of type of a situation. Oh, it's very much a creep show frame. Absolutely. But yeah, just, yeah, yeah, exactly. Just his overselling of the oh no, I thought it was funny. Um, Jeepers. But, yeah. Uh, and then, um, at, at that point, that's whenever, uh, we get, uh, like the next morning, right? Like Martin goes downstairs. He just, you know, he finds Dave. Like <laughs> he just, he just, just like, Oh man, I'm glad I had that whole business with my wife. Oh no, somebody else. And I like that. He's like, he's exasperated at the wax figures of these famous murderers. He's like, you know, like, what did you do? It's like, well, they're wax figures of famous murderers. What, like if they're going to do anything, it would be murder. I'm just going to throw that out there. They're, they were made very, very well. Yeah. I, I, I paraphrased his line here to say murder doll. How could you murder? So that was my, <laughs> my paraphrase line. Um, so then he's exasperated by that. And then, um, then the, like it starts picking up some speed. We find, um, at, after that, uh, we find that Martin's actually sleeping in the basement. At, at this like later on because we get um ferguson coming in to talk he's he comes to the basement to talk to martin about the good news and he notices that martin's been sleeping in the basement so my question to you would be uh how far would you go just to make sure that you're able to sleep in air conditioning oh how far would i go yeah uh, to sleep amongst murderers uh I don't know, man. If it's if it's pretty hot, I might actually do it. Murdering <laughs> wax figures, I, I might actually do it. I mean, it's like, but I'm their I'm their friend. Yeah, it's true. But it's like you're talking like if it was like like late July, August in Cleveland before like the the, the summer breaks, and there's just some of those days where it's so humid that like you just slide off the couch. Would you sleep in a murder basement if there's AC down there? I for most people, I think it'd be a coin toss. You know, that's that's where I'm at with that. Um, I, I can't, I cannot sleep in the heat. It isn't, it is impossible for me to sleep in heat. I go through hallucinations and that like, it's really bad when I try to sleep. Like, do you have hallucinations of like wax figures coming to life and trying to murder you? Cause I don't know. I mean, it might be, you know, it may not be the best situation, but, uh, I, I, yeah. I would take that if that was the, <laughs> the alternative to actual wax figures coming to life. <laughs> So, so yeah, Ferguson is, is there to tell him like, you know, like, um, he's found somebody to buy the figures, uh, you know, and like Martin's like, you know, like showing him like what he's done, take care of things. And there's a whole bit there where, uh, he said, he's like, Ferguson sees that Fer like, that Martin's sleeping in the basement. He's like, are you doing okay? And, and then Martin's like, no, I, I, things aren't okay. And I'm like, here's the moment he's finally going to like come clean about something. Right. And he was like, ah, oh, the figures, they haven't been behaving themselves. And it's like, oh so you're, you're suspicious of the figures, like, and nothing else, you know, like, I just feel like he's like, I don't know, a little weird. I'm sleeping in the basement with them because they're my friends, but they're not behaving themselves. The murder dolls are not behaving themselves. Um, and Ferguson kind of chalks it up to like stress and like, you know, Martin just overthinking things. 
Uh, he sends Martin up to get some tea while Ferguson does some um, like measurements because he sold these figures to a museum in Europe. And you know, so, of course, you know, Martin goes upstairs to leave another person in the basement alone with the murder dolls. And uh, yeah, so he, he needs to take some measurements, apparently. Yeah. So he gets over by um, the, the one figure of, uh, I think it's, who was it, Hicks? Right. I, I can't remember, but yeah. he's taking, he's, no, no, it's uh, Lundro. Um, he's taking measurements of Lundro. He's, I think he offended Lundro. Cause, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's true. Because he's, he's like, he takes some width measurements and he's like, hmm, a little wider than I expected. That's okay. No bother. And he turns around and the wax figure immediately uh, starts to choke him with a rope that he has in his hand. (laughs) It's like, it's, it's the actual only physical on-screen assault that we see uh, in the whole episode. And it's sudden and credit to the actor, the way he just drops that around and starts working on him. And it's so fast. It's like blink and you miss it, you know, and it's effective. Yeah, and, and I mean, like the other uh, kill scene of uh, Jack the Ripper is an autonomy thing. They 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 altered the exhibit to have moved because we saw that prior when Martin pressed the button. So we could chalk that up to an accident almost. Mm-hmm. This this is the the wax figure coming to life and choking Ernest. Yeah. And so we get Martin, uh, comes downstairs with the, with the tea and, you know, and then he immediately does everything that what a human would do, which is immediately drop all the tea and break it. Uh, cause he sees another dead person on the floor. Uh, and so, um, this is the one that, that tips the scales for him too much where he's, he's like, he's like, why? He's like, why would you kill my friend? He was my only friend. I want to been like, you didn't act this out outrage when your wife got killed, but he's upset that Ferguson is gone, which I was like, yeah, you, you mentioned priorities earlier in the episode that that's, this is a, a real, uh, severe, um, uh, disordering of priorities in terms of where his anger should be. Yeah. I almost wish that they would have played out some prior problems with the wife. So that way it didn't seem like he possibly cared about his wife that much. It would have been easier to accept, you know, that kind of loss. But at this point, it's like it seems like his prior employer is the bigger loss for him. So it was a little bit harder to take. But, you know, nonetheless, here we go again. Another <laughs> loss. <laughs> yeah. So then he he's actually at this point, he's like, he's done. He like, you know, you guys you know, basically like, you know, you can't stop doing what you're doing. You took this from me. I did everything for you. Um, now we're done. He's like, now I'm going to tear you guys down and melt you, you know? And he's yelling at all of them. And he was like, okay, who's first? Like, he's just yelling at these figures. Like, who's the first one to go? You know, he's just like, you know, he has a, uh, like, was it a crowbar or something? And he's about to, you know, go ham all over these wax figures. Um, and he, he goes to, uh, Landry. He's like, you first. And then we get another amazingly creepy scene when all the figures appear to animate, like their faces don't move but their bodies do. And they start you know, walking very uh, in unison and very clunky because they're wax figures. And that was creepy. Uh, but then they don't talk, but you hear their voices like telling Martin, like, no, you, you're the one that did all this. You know, you're the one that killed your wife. You're the one that killed your brother-in-law and you've killed your friend. 
and Martin can't handle that knowledge and the figures are like they they collapse on him real quickly. Um and it is it's it's a, it's a creepy scene. It's very effective because the eyes almost look like they're glass. It's really strange and kind of creepy to watch each one of these like non-emotive fakes faces coming at him. It's, it's really effective for me at least. And the makeup jobs too on this, like they make them look like just, just left of alive, like just like to the side of like, they're supposed to look like wax figures and the, the, the makeup effects are really good, you know? Um, yeah. And credit to the actors too. There was a lot of sequences with uh, Martin where he was talking in front of the actors that were supposed to be playing the figures and they did a good job of staying still. There's a little bit of wobble, but, like it's 63. So what are you going to do? You know? Um, so credit to them. Their performance is good. Uh, here. So I'll let you t- tell the ending. Cause the, the, it went, it went another place that I was not expecting. Okay. So after the, f- uh, the wax figures fall on top of Martin, he screams out. Sch- uh, the screen goes black and we cut to a, a new museum and, this is the museum that the figures were being transported to in Europe. And they have their own murderous row and they're just getting past the uh, Jack the Ripper exhibit when we find a brand new exhibit and they're talking about Martin and the murders that he had committed. And they talk about each one of them briefly and they talk about how the crowd has found this one the most upsetting because of the look in his eyes. And there he is. There's Martin as a wax figure. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot to be said about like how and why, but um, I think it's actually, I think it's the punchline to the whole episode where um, the episode's called the new exhibit. Right. And so then, the entire time you think it's talking about the fact that he has the four figures, sorry, five figures in the basement. It's like, Oh, that is an exhibit. But no, the whole episode is about Martin. He is the new exhibit. And I think that's kind of where they're going with it. And I kind of love those titles that are in your face the entire time. And then they reveal themselves at the end. Right. Yeah. It, it, that really worked well for me, especially when you saw that end sequence, you're like, ah, now it comes all together now it makes more sense like this i think this type of um plot line when you get a title works better like this and like in a vagueness mm-hmm. when instead of giving the ghost like immediately like okay well i know what's gonna play out now yeah no this is they had a nice light touch to the the title i liked it so yeah um good episode i mean pacing again for me a little weird but i think it's just a format thing uh i think they could have there there were times that i wish they would expanded on certain things and there's other stuff that i felt like they spent a little too much time on um like you're mentioning there that there should have been more depth to the conflict with his wife to give it a little bit more weight for either his indifference or her opposition which i mean her opposition is it's founded in the episode but she isn't given much to do other than worry about her husband, you know, and that's frustrating that I feel like uh, she should have been given, uh, she should have been given a little bit more depth than the stories given to the wax figures in the, in the episode. And that wasn't there. Um, you know, the brother is an interesting element, but I, there's just bits here and there. I wish they would tweak overall. I enjoyed the episode. 
Yeah, I did too. I, I really dug this one a lot. And I think that with the last two episodes that we didn't really care for so much, this was a breath of fresh air. And especially when it has, in my opinion, a bigger horror element to it, um, I, it really made me dig it that much more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it was good. So, um, all right, before we get into like uh, twists and all that stuff, do you have um, do you have any other notes about the episode proper? Because I have some stuff about uh, Beaumont. No, I do not. Okay. So as we talked about at the beginning of the episode, this was not actually written by Beaumont. It was written by a Jerry Soul. Uh, so at this time, uh, like I mentioned that we, we, we know that Beaumont's going through something that's withering him away and just kind of just sapping him mentally. Uh, people don't know. And he's, he was doing this thing for a long time where he was covering it up. Uh, and his friends believe that cause he, they would call him like, you know, early in the day and he would be just blitz drunk and his speech would be slurred. And everyone's like, Oh my goodness, what is he doing? Why is, why, why is Chuck like tying one on already? And in hindsight, people think that because his mental capacity was diminishing that he was trying to, um, hide it by just being drunk. And that would be able to explain away why things aren't clicking for him anymore. So it's his way of kind of like not self-medicating, medicating, but just trying, I guess, probably self-preservation in a lot of ways. Cause uh, there's also stories too, around this time where uh, one of his uh, friends, uh, they would like, they would all go to the movies on the weekends cause they love going to the movies. And at one point they asked uh, like Chuck Beaumont to go with them. And he, he broke down crying saying, I can't do movies anymore. Cause I just, I can't, I can't follow them. And they realized that something was wrong, but no one understood medically like around him, what that meant until, you know, like it just became this heartbreaking story. Um, and it's just, so at this point, the, the first, uh, portions of that were starting to come through. And so what he would do is, uh, people would approach him. Like we need a script for the twilight zone. He'd be like, Oh yeah, I got a great idea. And then he would find like somebody like Jerry Saul and then talk to them and say, listen, I know you're not union, but I'll split the money with you. 50, 50, just give me a script. It's going to have my name on it. But you, you know, you get a twilight zone episode that, you know, you can't tell anybody, but you get paid to write. And so, um, the two things I'll mention about this is that one, Jerry was on set while this was being filmed. And he, and he said that the script itself pretty much stayed intact from the moment he submitted it to, uh, to Beaumont to submit to, um, the twilight zone because everybody held up Beaumont in such high esteem that they, they thought his scripts were always really good. So they didn't edit it because they're like, Oh, it's Beaumont. It's solid which I think is kind of a funny like side effect. So Jerry's script stayed intact, like the way he did it. And he was actually kind of happy about it. Cause he didn't have to take notes from anybody and didn't get any, like any pushback from CBS. So he's like, it was fun. Like, but you know, <laughs> whatever he was on set. And, um, the director, John Brom came up to Beaumont and put his arm around him and said, you know, Chuck, you did it again while Jerry's standing right beside Charles Beaumont. And, and he's getting Beaumont's getting all the accolades for Jerry's work. And it's like that, that has to, you know, be like, it has to be kind of gratifying, but also just infuriating. Um, so I'll read this little bit here from, uh, the Martin Graham's junior twilight zone. Uh, what's it called? Twilight zone, unlocking the door to a television classic. This is an amazing book. If anybody has any passing interest in the twilight zone, I'd recommend getting it. Um, so what, 
what was believed to have have happened was that like, you know, Beaumont would have hammered out this, like, like he said, he'd pay 50, 50. So you'd think he would have worked a little bit on this. Now that I've, I've uh, framed it with his, his mental, his physical mental condition collapsing and starting to like get bad. This, this next section I'm going to read here, like it, just think about all that with what Jerry said about his experience of dealing with Beaumont. <clears throat> he was able to come up with an idea and sell it. Recall Jerry soul for an interview. Um, but beyond the, uh, the fact that th- these museum people were murderers, he had no story. And instead of plotting out the story, we really just chewed the fat. He seemed to waver and talk about other things, uh, than the story. It was rather unsettling for me. He said, it's up to you how you do this. So I did it and it didn't take very long. So it's, it's kind of heartbreaking that he's like, I got kind of an idea. And then, you know, Jerry just took it as, as him being kind of aloof and not talking about anything. I just don't think he was able to, um, hammer it out anymore. And he was really hiding it by just kind of being aloof. And I think that's, that's a very sad story. It is. It's, it's depressing. in the fact that we have seen so many episodes up to this point, and what he's been able to bring to the show and his storytelling. And now, well, and outside of that too, I mean, we've had plenty of different, um, you know, different movies have been adapted from his stories and that. And it, it is depressing. It, you know, you see somebody who has given so much light to an industry and now it's like, they're almost like a shell of what they were. And like, you're, you're going to see a, a, an unfortunate digress and what they're able to give to us. Yeah. He would be dead within like four years of this. And, um, like his family said that and friends were like, he was like mid thirties and he looked like he was 90 when he died. Like, so whatever it is just, and then people still aren't entirely sure what it was like, cause they, they just, you know, science isn't the same thing as it is now. And some of the stuff like, you know, obviously you can't diagnose until after, but like, and it's a bummer because he, is such a unique voice and just had all these crazy fun ideas. Like if, if people want some good peak Beaumont, go back and watch the howling man, that shit gets weird in a great way, you know? And I know we got two more of his quote unquote stories here coming up, but I don't know, I guess I'll find out at what capacity he contributed to those. I'm going to guess not much. Uh, there is something as well that some of these writers were like later on, were aware that things weren't going well for him and that they would step forward and give him writing credits so that way he could still get paid. I don't know how much capacity that happened for the Twilight Zone, the next two that we'll cover when they show up. But it's just, man, knowing from the first time that we encountered Charles Beaumont doing the show and digging deep, knowing that this was coming, it still sucks to run into it. But I, I figured this was a time that needed the time to talk about context. Yeah, I- and this is this is it. This is the stepping stone to like everything else we know. And it was what you were touching on earlier. And it's like we didn't really truly understand when that transition was going to happen. And now we know it. And yeah, it it doesn't get any easier. It really doesn't. Yeah, and it's also a bummer that Jerry Soule uh, at the time never, to my knowledge, he didn't contribute to the Twilight Zone again. You know, he wrote some Star Trek, which is cool, but like cool story. And he actually took what is basically just a skeleton and you know, and brought a lot to it. And it's just, you, you know, considering last week we got that script from John Furia, who uh, was kind of doing that as a favor to uh, the producer at the time. And he was like, I don't know, a genie, I guess. 
and you could tell that it sounded like he really wasn't into it. And you could tell by that episode, it like the twilight zone could be many things. That one still felt a little weird tonally for me. Um, this one is very much in the wheelhouse of the twilight zone and it gets way dark, you know, and, and, and I wish we'd have gotten seen more from Jerry soul as well, but overall this is a solid episode and there's a lot to dig into. No pun intended. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah right. Yeah. It was great. I enjoyed talking about it. And, um, I, I, you know, this is kind of my bread and butter. These, this kind of depicts exactly what I'm interested in as far as, um, you know, horror and storytelling in general. I, I really like the darker side and darker element of, uh, storytelling. Yeah. So, all right. I think that's going to do it for the, the talking proper about, um, the new exhibit, but you know, it's what we do here on the show. We're just going to rate a twist. I mean, there's a couple twists here. I think, um, I, the whole bit of him just kind of like dismissing that his wife died. I didn't see that coming. So, you know, that's higher for me. Um, the figures being like committing the murders, you know, but them finding out that it might've been in his head. I also don't think the episode did a very good job of, uh, I wish it would have figured out a way to kind of walk that line a little better to actually have more doubt put into the viewer's mind of is Martin actually responsible or not? Cause he looks like he was never around for any of the murders. I mean, I know that's his own mind supposedly, but when you show the episode to the viewer, I think you need to create that little bit of self doubt. And I don't know if the episode did it. So I don't know him becoming a figure at the end though. I overall want to average it out to a four. Cause I don't think there's just one twist. Yeah, I, I agree with you that there, there are a few twists in here that I, I feel need to be addressed. And you were kind of doing that there. This, the episode in general felt towards the end, like the, uh, like American psycho to me where you didn't quite know how to take what was going on with Martin towards the, like that part where the, you know, the wax figures are coming down on him. Did he commit the murders or is he all, is it imagining all in his head? Um, that, that scene for me played it to be a four. Like it was like a very strong and, uh, jarring scene for me. Um, and then like the end sequence where he becomes one of the displays that kind of felt more like a three, but <laughs> yeah, but yeah, like, it was a very strong episode for me and I didn't, I couldn't have, I could not have expected how it was going to be played out. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think that's going to do it for our talk about the, the, the new exhibit, uh, a surprising, a good episode. And that's again, why we watch the show in order and also why we're going to, we're going to make our way through season four because we've had, we've had some, some really down downs, but some really good ups i'll just say that um so i'm excited for what happens next so uh, you guys can find us on facebook at strange highways podcast uh, you can email us strange highways podcast at gmail.com uh wherever you listen to your podcast i mean i know it's on your phone i get it guys haha uh-huh. jokes on me um you know on your portable t- tape cassette player you just record them off the internet and then play them back later um where, however you download them, wherever that service is, rate and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Um, the more people, like the more people know that you like it, people will find out about it. And again, uh, if you have friends that might be interested in this stuff, just, just let them know. Like, I feel like this is always my, um, my PBS pledge drive portion of the show where it's like, Hey, do you have a friend or family member that could use a tote bag? Tell them about PBS. I'm just saying that like, it's surprising to me 
for doing podcasting now for what, four, almost five years, something like that. Um, the amount of people I know that are like, I don't know, podcasts, what are those? And it just blows my mind. So if you like them, recommend them. Yeah. I, I'm still finding a bunch of people that don't even know what the hell a podcast is. And it's yeah. like, I, I will show you the light. <laughs> <laughs> I will cure your boredom. Um, yeah, there, there's been plenty of, uh, you know, people coming out and saying how much they dig the show and that, but we're still uh, anticipating more. We yeah. want more people to come towards us and say, hey, I dig the show and I know some people that would like it. You could be that person. Yeah. Please be that person. <laughs> yeah. You tell two people and they tell two people and then you, they become, they become, you become their upline. And then, no, I'm just like, <laughs> it's a pyramid scheme involving a podcast. How could that fail? But yeah. Feed the machine. Yeah. Feed, feed, feed me Seymour. That's what I say to all that. So, <laughs> uh, so, all right. Uh, as we stated last episode, we're going to be taking two weeks off because I'm moving shit from one, from one place to another. So I hope you guys can bear with me. Uh, Terry has promised like, um, he's going to do some like, uh, live dance competitions on Facebook live for the strange highways page. I submit music, um, like for him to dance to. He, I, I'm, he's not committed to this at all. I'm now, I'm now volunteering him for uh, Friday night dance parties on uh, Facebook live for strange highways. Just throw that out there. Um, my request is uh warrants cherry pie. If you could dance to that on Friday night, that'd be wonderful. Uh, I was hoping for pour some sugar on me. <laughs> by Jeff Leopard. Okay. That's my, I'll, I'll do that. That's great. I'll, I'll have that playing on my phone while I'm moving things. So uh, yeah, we, we might have some stuff up on the Facebook in the meantime, we're taking two weeks off. When we come back, um, the next episode of Twilight Zone we'll be covering is called Of Late, I Think, of Cliffordville. Um, and we actually have a, a teaser for this one as opposed to last week. <clears throat> next on Twilight Zone, a trip back into time with Albert Salmi, John Anderson, and Julie Newmar. But this trip is an offbeat, very adventuresome, and totally unexpected itinerary. It's called Of Late, I Think, of Cliffordville. Getting Julie du Newmar. We're getting Catwoman in here. So that'll be exciting. Um, and Albert Salmi, which we've seen a couple times in the series. So hopefully feels like a lot of the episodes we've been dealing with, like going back to the past, haven't been that great recently. Maybe this is the one, maybe this is the winner. I have no idea. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm here bright eyed and bushy tail no matter what. So, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. So everybody have, have a safe week. Uh, you know, uh, be smart, be safe. Uh, you know, don't hug strangers. I don't know, whatever. Um, uh, I guess, I guess like, you know, do good at social distancing. Don't do social distancing like Martin did. That didn't go well. Um, and also I, I guess the only other advice I'd say is buy air conditioning. Don't buy murder dolls. And I will see you soon. People. I hate to put you here, Emma, but what can I do? I know I should report it to the police, and I want to, but... but who would believe me if I told him that you were killed by Jack the Ripper? You can see that, can't you? Besides, if 
I went to prison, as I probably would, who would take care of the figures? 